Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This is Good Morning Liberty. Well, what is up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Good Morning Liberty. My name is Nate Thurston, and joining me today, very special guest, Mr. John Miltimore, the managing editor of Feed.org. John, how you doing today? Hey, doing great, Nate. Good to be back with you. Yeah, it's been a bit. We were talking, I think it might have been a couple years now, but we keep reading your stuff on the show all the time, so it'd be good to actually hear it from you because we're not going to do it quite as good as you are. Uh, one more, uh, I wanted to make sure, what part of the country are you in? I live in the Twin Cities. Okay, all right. Minnesota. Is the, uh, you know, I, I, I heard the pandemic's over. Is the pandemic over up there? Everyone is living a normal life. Okay. Right. And, 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 you know, like it's one of those things. Biden, I think, was right. The pandemic is over. You, you got some people, though, that don't want it to be over. They can't let it go. Um, pretty much everywhere you look, life is back to normal. Um, let it go. The pandemic is over. Now, now, again, what does that mean? Does that mean people are still getting sick? Yeah. Some people are, are you know, like I'm not saying the virus doesn't exist. Um, it does. Yeah, we. I think a lot of people are just having a hard time letting go, like what you were saying. And I guess since I went ahead and asked you about the COVID thing, we could skip to a couple of those for the first part. And then just so everyone knows, uh, John had written an article about price controls, and we keep dealing with people wanting to control prices. And that's the main thing we wanted to talk about. So, uh, But first off, these people who can't let COVID go, do you think it's because they're super concerned about the well-being of all of the people in the country or would you go ahead and say that there could be some other motives involved i think it's different for different people i think a lot of people are just genuinely terrified still like they like they really um i think it's easy to forget you know it's been a couple of years um which is you know that's not a short amount of time but how, how terrified people were back in march 2020 and then you just had weeks and months of people that were just looking at dashboards all the time. Um, media really, I think, helped create a culture of fear. Um, so I think people, they altered their lives. Um, I personally still know people. Um, these aren't, I wouldn't say they're libertarian people. Um, they're not progressives. Um, that they're, they really are, they still have not gone back to normal. So I, I think there is that that component, that contingents out there. Um people that are genuinely scared. I think you have other people that are still playing a different game. Maybe they don't want to let go of emergency powers. We saw that in states, right? The leaders just didn't want, they had emergency powers, didn't want to give them back. 
Um, and you have other people that don't want to admit they're wrong, maybe, you know, like, so, so I think it is split. Um, but, you know, we need to realize uh, we need to go back to normal because it's, it's part of the process of, of correcting, you know, what we've seen over the last couple of years. We're, we're you know, we're not out of the woods yet. Like we're going to see a lot of econ- economic turmoil. We're still seeing it, you know, inflation. We're not through the woods yet there. Markets are getting hammered. Um, we need we need to let this stuff go. And, and there are still policies in place. There, I mean, some people are still getting I think maybe you saw the story. Um, in New York, you still have teachers getting let go because they didn't they didn't get take a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think it's a, a good sign that the president of the United States is saying the pandemic's over. Now we need to get the policy caught up to that. Uh, yeah, I agree. And I, I do think it's a mix of both. I, I know some people, I would say, don't want to let go of that power. And then some people have people in my family who, as of, I think, in the last month, still wouldn't give me a hug because I hadn't been vaccinated. And so that's kind of weird, but I'm, I've switched to, you know, I take it seriously, more of the Great Barrington, uh, what was that declaration kind of thing. I went to see my 93-year-old grandmother last weekend, and I uh, took a test before I went there to make sure that I didn't have COVID. And I think that if everyone just does smart things like that, we're, we're going to be okay, right? Yeah, I, I took a test, I bet you, uh, just a short while ago. You know, again, like I... I Sure enough, I, I have COVID. Um, very, very light bout, like, but I wasn't sure, but I wanted to be sure. Um, but yeah, like I, I think you, you touched on some family gatherings are still the weirdest part, right? Mm-hmm. Because we have, you know, all these people like our social groups, you know, I think most of the people I know socially kind of see this like I do, but then you have family and other people see it, you know, real different. We were at um, what was it? Maybe it was a Labor Day weekend thing, or, or maybe it was before Labor Day, actually, just a family visit. Um, my wife's cousins were there, and masks came up, and and he somebody started to berate my sister-in-law a little bit because she, you know, she said, "I don't want my kids in masks." And he said, "It's such a small thing." He said, "How can you, you know?" Well, he's not wearing a mask. It, <laughs> he was all for mandates, but I, I, you're not wearing one. Um, you know, like so. So it's so strange to me if you really believe this in such a small thing. Why aren't you wearing one? And it, it, the, the simple answer is all these things come with trade-offs. Some are very small, right? Some are huge. But you, you, you need people to understand that. Um, and, and people finally are admitting that. And it may, for some, it took a few months or some a year or two. But um, all these policies do come with trade-offs. Well, speaking of those trade-offs and maybe admitting that you were wrong or changing your opinion, you wrote a piece on Dr. Lena Wen or Lana Wen. I don't know how you yep. say it. Uh, we have covered her a lot over the last couple of years because she's been one of those that were out there pushing sort of this authoritarian viewpoint, this COVID authoritarian viewpoint. And then lately, she's felt what it's like to be on the flip side of some of that argument because she said that the masks are not going on her kids. And so she's admitting that there are trade-offs. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it, it's something that is tragic. Like her, her child was suffering, you know, uh, a speech handicap because of this, like they would worn it so much. Um, and for her, I, I think that was kind of a wake up call. She actually uses the word trade-offs. Um, that was a, a word I, I don't believe appeared in one's vocabulary for the, first <laughs> of the, the pandemic. And if you go go back only a year, she was telling she was saying people that weren't vaccinated shouldn't be allowed to leave their home. Um, but I, I think when she when she actually experienced something with, in her own sphere, in her own family, um, that was you know th- this isn't a trivial matter when it comes to speech and language and learning. 
Um, and then you look at, you know, of course, then the next question is, well, if it saves just one life, um, does it? You know, like there's all this literature out on masks. The World Health Organization was saying early in the pandemic, don't wear them. Dr. Fauci was saying early in the pandemic, don't wear them. Um, they don't do anything. Um, that's a whole different conversation. Um, and, and one, you know, I, people, you're not going to change probably too many people's minds on that once they're set. But I think where there is good ground is, is to, to bring up these trade-offs and say this isn't something for nothing. Whether it's the comfort of your face, whether it's trying to you know learn, which is frustrated from a mask, all these things come with trade-offs. Um, admit that nobody wants people to get sick, nobody wants people to die. Um, but you know, at Fee, I think one of the things we I was really proud of that we established early on, forcing people to do things, coercing people to do things. This isn't going to, to get this pandemic over any faster, um, but it is going to cause a whole lot of problems. And that's exactly what we saw. Yeah. And then what I wanted to say about Dr. Wynn also was that in order for all of this to work, we have to believe that people can change or it's not going to work. And we need to be uh, receptive when people do actually change their viewpoints on things and start talking about trade-offs and go against the grain and take a take a lot of crap because they're going against i don't know if you've seen all the uh, i mean all the cancel cancellation that people are trying to do to her but uh we need to i guess just be as receptive and and nice as possible even though if she is still pretty authoritarian on things people possibly can change and we don't need to punish them for doing that we need to be receptive when they do that and that's just for some of our listeners who might want to say some kind of snarky comment on her when she says that uh, she's not going to have her kids wear masks uh, the other thing one more thing on covid uh, when it comes to vaccinating the kids uh, the u.s seems to be a little bit different from some other countries out there and you recently wrote about that as well yeah, well, I wrote a couple pieces. It's it's pretty interesting. Like over in the UK, you have the the government there is not even offering. You know, I won't go so far as to say they're they're banning the vaccine for young children. Um, you can still get it if you're in like a high risk group, um, but they're not giving vaccines to, to young people at all. Um, and uh, over here, you have U.S. cities that are actually trying to mandate it, and some are mandated um, to go to school that you have to get it. Um, and, and to me, you know, like my, my whole point is there, you know, how we deal with this as a society, like the whole idea of informed consent is you say, okay, here's, the, here's what this is. Um, here's what it can do. Here are the risks. You make the choice, right? Um, governments aren't doing that. We're saying, no, you can't have that, or you must have that. Um, I shouldn't say they're not doing that. I, there, there's just too much of, of the authoritarian side, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to choose for you. We know what's best for you. Um, and, and that does run against informed consent, which is a, a very important medical ethic. Now, I will point out, um, and maybe you haven't seen this one yet, um, states, I, I, I pointed out this in an article I think published yesterday. States are not mandating vaccines for kids. to I just read that one this morning, actually. Yeah, and, and I none of them are. And you, you, what you did have is that, you know, last year, it looked like a couple of states were going to do that. They've since backed off. Um, and, you know, like you, you wonder, well, why is that? Have they have they learned something? Um, do they now realize that, you know, um, violating someone's bodily autonomy in this way is unethical? Um, I, you know, I explore this in, in the article a little bit, but I think the real answer, you know, in, in students of public choice theory, um, I think, you know, we'll, we'll probably understand where I'm going. 
this is probably a political calculation. Um, the, the incentive structure are, is very different for, for vaccine use than things like lockdowns. Lockdowns, you know, I think were, were very harmful, but you didn't see the harms, you know, for a long time. A lot of those costs were hidden. That's not the case with vaccines. Um, you know, I, I'm somebody, you know, I, I know people in my family that were vaccinated. I wasn't because I got the virus very early. Um, I, I'm one, I think the vaccines probably can be very helpful for people in certain groups. Um, but there are risks. And the CDC is very clear on that, too. And I, I think, you know, you do have people that don't want to admit those risks, but they're real. Um, the, the heart inflammation issues do exist. And, you know, it's a tragedy when we do see a young person die after taking a vaccine. Everybody agrees on that. But it's, it's, it's worse than a tragedy when it happens if somebody was, was forced to take it, right? Like you're going to have um, a, a, a lot of, there's going to be a little bit of hell to pay for anybody that forced that child. So I think that's what you're seeing. Um, politicians don't want to be blamed for a, pot a potential injury from a vaccine. Um, so I'm, I'm happy that they're not doing it. Um, but I, I just think it's a good, you know, opportunity for people to think about it. Public actors, there's this idea that they're always acting for the common good, right? And we're going to do what's good. I think public actors still operate on incentives, just like everyone else, but they're working, you know, with different incentives in mind. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that if it were to become politically profitable for them to try those mandates at some point in the future, I, uh, I don't doubt that they would hesitate to to do that. But right now, going into a midterm election and with COVID, you know, on the downswing and in the back of people's minds, I just don't think it's a, a good political move for them right now. And hopefully it won't be in the future. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just second that. And, I'll, and I should point out, it doesn't mean that these these won't happen. There's still several states that are talking about it. They, they, they decided not to do it this school year, but that doesn't mean that they won't do it next year. So all of this COVID nonsense over the last couple of years has led the uh, the the world economy into a really bad spot. And we trade. I, I also have a stock market trading course and I go live. I trade every morning. The market's been crashing like crazy. Uh, the economy's uh, not looking all that great. And when that starts to happen, we get that inflation. We get the standard call for price controls, which is uh, where I reached out to actually uh, to talk to talk to you about this, because you talked about how people have been trying to control prices for a long time. Uh, it never works. I don't know if there is an instance of it working. I would like someone to present that to me at some time in the future while making the argument for price controls, but I, I never really get it. Uh, how long have we been trying to do this and are we ever going to stop? Yeah, yeah, it's a point I like to make to people like price controls are not progressive. They're regressive. We've been trying this for at least 4000 years. We can go back to ancient Mesopotamia. And, you know, we have we have tablets that that predate the code of Hammurabi and they're talking about one shekel of silver. It can be worth this much barley. One shekel of silver. Is this worth this much oil? Um, and obviously not oil like from the ground, it's like an oil for, for treating skins and or maybe for cooking or things like that. Um, but but, yeah, we've been trying this a long time. Um, you know, in, in the article, I kind of trace just the history, you know, you. I mentioned, you know, ancient Babylon, you can go up to uh, ancient Greece, uh, the Athenian Empire tried it and the results were, were disastrous. Um, Diocletian famously did it um, and they were regulating everything from, you know, labor, 
um, to clothing, to all these different foods. Um, and I should point out in, in the ancient uh, tradition, the penalty for, for violating price controls also was death. Mm. Um, you know, it, but you can go further. There is uh, one of the, you can go to the, the British Empire, one of the, the great famines uh, in human history. Um, an estimated 10 million people died in India during uh, the, the Bengal famine. And um, there was, there was, you know, Adam Smith actually touches on this in the, in the Wealth of Nations a little bit. Um, and there was a drought and there was, you know, some, some monsoons and things. Um, there there would, would have been a, a food shortage, but it, there would, you know, almost certainly not have been a, a, a full-blown famine if they hadn't implemented, you know, price controls to try to solve the problem. Um, and, and one might think after, you know, okay, now we have the Wealth of Nations. We have all the, this economics. Um, we, we, we've learned something. Well, we, we, we clearly haven't. The 20th century, you can find all kinds of examples of price controls, including, you know, like in the U- U.S., a very famous example is Nixon, right? Um, during the oil embargo, Nixon, um, you know, implemented price controls. And, and all those lines you see in the 70s, it's, it's interesting. Somebody just brought it up to me and they said, well, I think those lines were the result of the embargo, right? Like, and I'm like, well, th- no, there was no, there was no gas lines before the price controls went in there. And it makes sense when you actually stop and think about it because um, would prices have went up? Sure, yeah, there's an oil embargo, um, but you're not gonna have shortages because the, the price is gonna go up. And what happens when prices go up? People use less. And there's also, you know, that, that's on the, 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 for the consumers, but on the production side, prices go up. You're gonna find more ways to, to invest in ways to get oil out of the ground. Um, an interesting part, I think that's kind of overlooked, Nixon knew his price controls weren't gonna work. Um, we have we have transcripts of those conversations. Um, Nixon knew very well these weren't gonna work, but he was, he was putting them in place right before the, an election um, and saw that they would be, you know, probably help him. And he was not wrong. So, you know, is, is that cynical? Yeah. Um, but it shows that the American people for a long time um, have been struggling to understand basic economics. Yeah, you you think, I don't know, from, from our perspective, maybe it seems obvious why it wouldn't work. But um, a lot of people, they just think about maybe the emotional aspect of it. You know, I've gotten in some heated, kind of, I could call them arguments, whatever, about price gouging. Price gouging is this thing that no one likes. And then you use like the worst case scenario that you possibly can. There's a hurricane, it hits and the gas stations are charging double or the, the cases of water go up three, four times the amount. And you can't allow people to, to do that. But uh, we also on the podcast call price gouging supply and demand that you don't like. That's, uh, that's actually what it is. We, we love gas going down right now. You know, we're, we're heavily in favor of, of gas going down, but when it's going up, well, that's price gouging. And when it's going down, that's a uh, justice. I don't fairness. I'm not sure what it really is. What do you think about the whole price gouging conversation? Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that I went through a pretty big shift a few years ago. My music career was winding down at a time that I didn't want it to. I had a lot of social anxiety. I just didn't really know where I was going or what I was doing or what I even wanted to do. And I started drinking a lot. I'll just be honest with you. I wasn't actually dealing with any of the problems in my life. Something come along, I just focus even more on whatever those problems were and I'd just make them go away real easy. And the issue was when I never actually took the time to solve the problem to figure out what was really going on guess what they never went away they were always there the next day 
and it just got worse and worse. I finally went and talked to someone. You know, I went to therapy and they taught me some ways that I could actually solve those problems without drinking. Now, these days I'm over four years sober and whenever something comes along that makes me anxious or makes me upset, I don't just try to escape from it and I don't really dwell on it. I try to drill down and figure out what is it that I can do to actually solve this. So if any of these things are resonating with you, You've been thinking about giving therapy a try? BetterHelp, it really is a great option. Convenient, accessible, affordable, all online. You can do video calls. You do voice chat. You can just do text chat if you want to. You get matched with a therapist after filling out a quick survey, and you can switch therapists anytime you want. So when you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com gml today. To get 10% off your first month, that's betterhelp.com slash GML. Oh, I, I think, again, people need to understand that, that prices are signals, right? Um, you know, value is a subjective thing. Um, nobody can say what something is worth. Is worth. Like, like, people need to, what you're willing to pay for something. Um, so high prices mean you have a high demand for something. And, and the solution to high prices is, is high prices. Because what happens when you have high prices? Um, people, people use less of it. When gas was, you know, $7 a gallon, people are going to drive less. Like, we know that. Like, we have empirical data. You know, it's not just economic theory. People will drive less when, when the gas prices are really high. And, and you can look on the other side. What, the, what does high oil and gas prices do? You have a lot of people working real hard to bring more product to market. You a lot more investment going in because of those those high prices attract that investment. That's that's opportunity for profit. Um, so I think you know all that price gouging things. I, what I think it is, there is a hostility that we've had for a long time, like treating profit as some kind of guilty thing, as some sort of shameful thing by trying to um, to, to profit. But that's what exchange is about. That's why we trade. You know, all, all human trade, we, we, we do it because it improves our situation. Otherwise, we wouldn't make that trade. Um, but I think this is a culture that for a long time where we teach people that, that profit is a bad thing. The truth is profit's a very good thing. And it does. it's not about taking advantage of something else. If you have voluntary exchange, both parties are going to benefit from any trade. We, I don't know if we ever get any people agreeing with us, especially if they're on the left, but in, from what I can tell, profit actually makes things cheaper. That's a very difficult argument to make with people. Maybe it's not always the case. I, I don't know, but it definitely seems that when you add profit into the scenario, there's an incentive to get the production costs down so you can keep a little bit for yourself. Whereas if there were no profit, then why would you keep the production costs down? Let's just do a cost plus kind of thing or whatever and, and make the production costs as much as possible. And I feel like if you could get that little idea through in, into people's minds that profit actually makes things cheaper for the most part, maybe we'd be living in a different world right now. Yeah, no, I, I don't think you want to live in any place, any society where where profit is illegal. Um it's it's funny. I'm I'm editing right now an article on on Poland during the you know when it was part of the Soviet Union, um, and profit there. I won't say it was illegal, um, but it, you know I'm going through the history. It was, it's a very good history piece, and you have you know these people that when they want to, oh, I'm going to get married. I I have a ration card. I'm applying to get some white you know stuff for a dress. Right. I'm I'm applying. I got a ration card here. To get a gold ring, which you could do when it, um, 
all of this, you know, you had this 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 communist economy, and it wasn't, you know, operating on prices in, in, in any way that Americans would recognize. It was all centrally planned or, or primarily centrally planned. And if you wanted something, you better have a ration card for it. And you had central planners decide, deciding what people could get, who could get what. That is no way to run an economy. And the world saw that in the 20th century, right? We saw the failure of, of, of socialist planning. Yet human humans show that they we, we forget. We forget very fast. And we see it creeping back in, um, especially, you know, recent history. We've seen, you know, Venezuela, which was a very wealthy country, one of the wealthiest countries in the 20th century, um, you know, took the path of socialism. And, and, and we can see what, what, hap- what is happening there. And I think it, it all comes, you know, down or a lot of it comes down to, you know, looking at profit as something that's evil. And you have some politicians that sell it to people like we're going to bring equality to you. We're going to take from those who have more. Um, and it's a disastrous, a d- disastrous uh, ideology and economic system. Well, we have a few other examples here just uh, just recently, and I almost call these kind of faux price controls, more subsidizing things, but say capping the price on insulin at $35 for people. Now, that doesn't mean that the insulin maker is not going to get anything more than $35. It means people aren't going to pay more than that if they're in that system. There's also things like these electric bill price caps in the in the UK. Well, that doesn't mean that the electric bill isn't going to be higher than that. That's just capping what people are actually going to pay. Uh, we have other things. Um, I mean, even look at like water in California. There's there's all sorts of examples where uh, it, things seem like price controls, uh, but actually on the back end, what you don't see is that the price is still spiraling upwards on them. I'm worried that's what we're going to see with electricity bills and with insulin costs and everything. Uh, but the politicians sell it as a price control, and then it might look like it's working to people because they see that they're not paying more than $35 for their for their insulin. And so therefore price controls work. But of course, that's not the full cost of the item. I wonder if you do you differentiate those those things when talking about price controls? You know, I, I think it's important for people to understand one of the reasons that we have price controls is people don't want to admit we live in a world of scarcity. Um, and, and prices recognize that scarcity. Um, and when you hide the prices, you, you can maybe, you know, artificially keep something lower or higher, but it does not change the fact that that these are, are scarce goods, that they need to be created. Um, and sooner or later, by using those, you're going you're, you're gonna, to uh, have shortages or a lack of supply. Um, you're you're going to increase demand in ways that are going to be harmful. And uh, eventually that scarcity is going to be realized. Um, prices like, uh, and I'll just go back to something I said earlier, these are signals that help us. They help us determine, um, what, what a good price is, like how to conserve things that are scarce. The, they're, 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 they're signals that help us realize that we need more of something because we don't have enough right now. Hiding that will not change the reality that these are scarce goods. If you're like me, you're growing more and more concerned about the future. Inflation is at its highest level in 40 years. Interest rates are skyrocketing. Market experts like Jamie Dimon, CEO of JP Morgan, not only predict a recession, but are using terms like economic hurricane and unprecedented. If you want to protect your future, do what I've done. Call the only precious metals dealers I trust, American Hartford Gold. 
They can show you how to protect your savings and retirement accounts by diversifying your portfolio with physical gold and silver. All it takes to get started is a short phone call and they'll have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. And they make it easy. They're the highest rated firm in the country with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first qualifying order. So don't wait. Call them now. Call 866-709-3080. That's 866-709-3080. Or text GML for Good Morning Liberty to 998-899. That's GML to 998-899. Or call 866-709-3080. Zero or text GML to 998-899, and there's a link in the show notes. I wanted to read you a couple lines from the, uh, an article, one line from the Axios article that you linked to in the, pri- in the Price Controls article. There was a quote that I found pretty funny. It said, price controls were largely abandoned after the 70s as both American and global policy shifted toward less government involvement in the economy. Um. Have we shifted towards less government involvement in the economy since the 70s? Uh, I, I would say certainly not, especially in recent years. Um, yeah, it, it's funny because I, I I saw a different one today. I was I was looking for some information for an article or a tweet or something. And it, it talked about Nixon going off the gold standard in 1971. And the, the article, this is a, the top thing that comes up on Google, that, 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 that Nixon did this. Uh, to curb inflation. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, well, it, it kind of had the counter impact, right? Um, but but no, I, I think, you know, since the 70s, we've seen, you know, uh, there might have been, you know, a, a little bit during the 70s, we did kind of step back from, from some of the things. Um, I've talked about it before, like J- Jimmy Carter deregulated a lot of things. You know, Reagan gets, you know, all the credit <clears throat> for, for the, the boom of the 80s. Um, and, and Reagan deserves a lot of credit. But um, Carter did some very important things that are often overlooked, and it may have cost him his presidency, um, but he got very serious about inflation. He started to deregulate some very important sectors, including energy, um, and, and, and maybe he didn't win political points for some of those things. Um, but, but Carter does deserve some credit for, for being more laissez-faire than people remember. Him. Well, it was uh, Carter that brought in uh, Paul Volcker, right? Volcker, yeah. Yeah, so that, you know, I didn't learn that until recently, actually, and it made me have uh, just a little bit more respect for him because I think it was pretty clear what Volcker was going to do and that that it was going to uh, potentially cost him a re-election, but it was really what needed to be done. So that did give me, I gave him some credit for that. I thought that that was a good thing. I wanted to give you one more ridiculous thing. I don't know if you read the New York Times article it was called the days of energy deregulation are over in Europe. And it was after these, uh, after Europe announced some of their new plans for natural gas and all that. So the days of energy deregulation are over. Uh, as prices soar, Britain has joined other countries in tightening control of gas and electricity markets, reversing years of free market policies. Uh, so, th- so that's one line. And then another line in this talking about Europe's current situation They say, after decades of promoting a free market approach to the electricity and natural gas industries, European governments are taking back control. Record high energy prices, partly the result of Russia, of course, are prompting lawmakers to discard 
the economic orthodoxy and undue years of painstaking deregulation. What's your immediate reaction to something like that? I mean, that was just written like last week or the week yeah, before. Yeah, I won't I guess. claim to be an expert in, in European energy, but they look to have anything but a free market to me. Um, if they did, but, well, I mean, why have we seen in, in recent decades like them rolling back nuclear power like this? I, I, I think those plants were operational. Um, they um, they were working. Um, instead, what we saw was European leaders start scrapping, you know, anything that was actually producing energy and deciding that um, we're going to just import lots of, of natural gas and oil from, from Russia, which is a very insane policy, by the way. Um, and, and they kind of put themselves in this predicament. I don't think the free market had anything to do with that. Um, but it, it, I'm not shocked by the New York Times um, pushing that narrative. On top of that, so this is the day where they announced that they were going to be subsidizing people's energy bills. And what the New York Times did not mention one time in this article was that the UK was lifting their ban on fracking for natural gas. Now, that's a... a a free market policy, if I ever heard of it, you know, this deregulation. I, I it's great to see the UK is doing it. We should be doing it here. It's interesting, like the, the energy climate right now has people, for, you know, for good reason, you know, questioning a lot of the insane policies. Um, Lawrence Summers, you know, an economist who served in the Obama administration and the Clinton administra administration, came out today and said, why are we still shipping oil by, by rail? He said, this is, and he used the word insane. Um, like we're, we're building no you know, energy infrastructure in this country. Like, we, for some reason, we have an, a hostility to oil pipelines, which move oil more safely, less expensively, um, and, and more environmentally friendly than any rail car. Um, but for some reason, oil oil pipelines seem to be like a, a, a symbol um, to environmentalists, that, and, and they don't like them. Um but the you know the energy climate has people you know speaking out and saying yeah this this is not sound policy like we you know oil pipelines can can do this better why aren't we building some? So, I guess what I want to leave it with here, and I'm going to ask you the hardest question that that there is to possibly answer: Where are we going from here? And is there any hope to turn the ship around? You know, there's there's definitely a hope. Um, I don't know where we go from here now. Um, it's. It, I, I think we're in for a little bit more pain yet. I, you know, I'm. I'm one of those people. I don't think we're. I said this really. I don't think we're, we're through the woods on inflation. Um, markets are in, in for some more. You know, difficult days. Um, the federal government has a 31 trillion dollar debt. Like, we, we can't. I mean, you can't ignore that. Um, and and we've really painted ourselves in a corner. Um, you know, we we we, we can't sit there and. Print money next time. You know, when, when we get in a jam, we see all the problems it's causing. Um, but yeah, like I, I think you know, one of the things this is like uh, something I learned at Fee. Um, I, I like to to read Leonard Reed, who is the founder of Fee, um, and in a very um, he was he was a good writer, um, an optimist, all these things, and he lived through the darkest, like. Um, he was he was a, a, a New Deal proponent in 1933, right? Like he was, um, and then became convinced by someone else, like, hey, you know, like like somebody just in a, in a one hour long conversation told him, um, you know, like gave him all the reasons why the New Deal was a big problem, and and he converted converted Reed, 
But then read from there and look at World War II. He, you know, he saw the rise of fascism. He saw the rise of communism. He saw the, the great leap forward, all these things. Um, liberty has seen much darker than, than today. And um, we, we need to remember that. Like our, our ideas of liberty are very good. Um, I, I think we need to look at ourselves and say, like, how can we share these ideas better? How can we how can we learn more ourselves, communicate these ideas in a way that that resonates, um, do it with humility? I mean, if I'd say that if there's any single thing in the in the world today we're missing more than anything else, I think it's humility. And, and there's nobody that has a monopoly on that. It's certainly not. You know, you, you see it all over the place. There's a lot of arrogance. Um, arrogance. Um, it inhibits us from learning. It makes it harder for us to talk to one another. Um, so, you know, yeah, we have bright days ahead. But, you know, for every listener, I'd say, look to ourselves. What can we do better? Um, how, how, what, what can we learn? You know, like that's one of the things I've recommitted to just recently. Um, we should be lifelong learners. Um, you know, it's not like you graduate from high school, you're done. Or you don't graduate from college, you're done. You don't get your PhD and you're done. We need to, we need to approach learning that way. Um, and it's a lifelong um, project. And, and if, you, if you approach it that way and you share ideas, you know, humbly, I, I think, um, you know, I think we will see big changes. But I'd also tell people, don't don't think that changing, you know, just voting in a different party is going to solve these problems. It won't. Yeah, you uh, you have to make uh, to a very loosely and terribly paraphrase paraphrase Milton Friedman. Once again, you have to make it political, politically profitable for the wrong people to do the right thing. And so just getting the right person in is not going to do the trick because the the right person will end up doing the wrong thing. Also, we're going to have to make it politically profitable for those people to do what they need to do. And that's going to come through spreading this message. And I like the humility part, by the way, that's also, if you're going to try, if you're going to convert someone, or you're going to try and get someone to think actually approaching the conversation with humility and understanding and, and asking them to explain their viewpoint to you and just asking questions I found is the best way to allow someone to destroy their own argument. So anyway, uh, John, I really appreciate your time today and where can everyone go to follow what you're doing? Hey, you can find all our content on fee.org, uh, F-E-E.org. And, and it's not just the articles that we produce. You know, we have lots of video content, lots of stuff. Um, you can find me on Twitter, uh, Miltimore79. Follow me and um, happy to, to chat there, you know, with people. Um, Twitter's, Twitter's a fun space for me because you, you do get to meet a lot of people in our in our movement. Um, and, you know, Twitter is, is it a food fight sometimes? Yeah. But uh, it's also just a great place to hang out and meet other people that are you know, some like-minded, some that are a little differently minded than you. Um, but uh, yeah, Miltimore 79. It's not always just history and economics either. I love this article, Everything Demolition Man Got Right About the 21st Century. I especially appreciated that article because that was one of my favorite movies when I was growing up. So I clicked on that one as soon as I saw it. So there's all kinds of great stuff over there. John, thanks so much for your time today. Hey, Nate, it was my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation.